You're listening to MAPS Magic and Medicine. I'm James Perla. MAPS Magic and Medicine explores the importance of indigenous groups to protect the environment. Close to 20 years ago, a new strategy tried to reimagine the relationship between indigenous groups and conservation organizations. It focused on building long-term relationships and tried to incorporate completely different ways of understanding the world into a larger vision to protect the environment. Many of the stories on this podcast feature the people and projects associated with the Amazon conservation team, like Liliana Madrigal, who has worked in conservation and with indigenous groups for close to two decades. It's not nature that needs management, it's people. Through these stories, the program addresses common concerns across Amazonian communities to obtain land rights, strengthen cultural identity, and to live without having to give up what it means to be indigenous. Taita Luciano, an Ingano shaman from the Colombian Amazon, describes the tensions about development and aid projects in the Amazon, about what prosperity looks like, what knowledge is valued, and whose voice is heard. The, the threats that come into the territories, like roads, usually say that they're going to bring progress, usually say that they're going to bring benefits to the community. But nobody's looking at and nobody's measuring the impacts on the spiritual level. The spirits are not easy to see and much less easy to measure. On this episode of Maps, Magic, and Medicine, people first. In the 1970s and 80s, conservation was in transition. A new movement of what's called new conservationists sought to change the environmentalism of the past. Think John Muir, national parks, and modern American environmentalism. This former way to do conservation created protected areas like pristine national parks to preserve endangered species. The new conservationists wanted to change this approach to make the drivers of ecological destruction more environmentally friendly. They did so through market-based solutions and certification schemes, as well as sometimes partnered with corporations. As is often the case, there's a third possibility to create something entirely different. And this is where Liliana Madrigal fits in because she was frustrated with both options. Well, I left uh, conservation because I was totally disenchanted with the way that it was being done. Uh, I didn't feel that it was effective at all. You know, we had all been involved in big conservation organizations where it's very hard for a dollar to escape the beltway. That's Adrian Forsyth. I'm executive director of the Andes Amazon Fund. Liliana, Adrian Forsyth, and a group of other colleagues from the big brand name organizations in conservation decided to try something new. We looked at, at the map and of the Amazon and saw that, you know, 25% of the forests were in the hands of indigenous people. That indigenous people did not have the support systems that they needed to continue to play the fundamental role that they play in sustaining these incredibly vast forests that are critical to mitigate climate change. And so we saw a huge opportunity there. 
Historically, government and conservation organizations have had a problematic relationship with indigenous groups, sometimes using the protection of wildlife and nature as a justification to remove indigenous groups from their territory. But the way that we approached it was in their terms, you know, understanding what it is that they wanted, how they wanted it, and to really be patient, to put aside, you know, the rush to try to have immediate results at any cost. The new approach called biocultural conservation seeks to protect the environment by working on the ground with communities. It integrates culture and indigenous values into conservation planning and prioritizes long-term relationships where the survival of local communities and cultures has global implications. You know, the real test of whether something is working is if the habitat is still there, the culture is still there, and if you can't get down to that level where you can actually see it, uh, then it's not really real. So I think that was the kind of impetus for going through the hell of creating new nonprofits. And Liliana explains how conservation organizations sometimes fail to recognize what it takes to work effectively in these areas. They leave behind, you know, initiatives that they started, which require a long time to mature. And there's two schools of thoughts. You know, you either, you know, make it happen within a few years and demonstrate that it's successful, or you stay the course. So Liliana and her colleagues reacted to the way big organizations conducted projects in the field. But they also tried to address the disparities of who gets to participate and whose voice is silent. You can have protected areas, but if you don't have communities that are healthy and that understand the importance of those areas because they're hungry, because they have to go out and do something else, that's not going to work. And so it's really important, you know, to integrate the cultural identity, which is a huge threat. Raquel Gomez worked with Liliana at the time, and she helps to put it in context. Indigenous peoples need their territory in order to change their destiny. This had never happened before. The national park systems in all throughout Latin America and even the United States have never been consulted with the Indians. They never took part on this. A huge part of this work involves listening to and learning from indigenous groups about what's important to them for their communities. For Liliana, the end result is radical. What the end result should really be for all of us, all the organizations, you know, to work ourselves out of a job. Absolutely. It's not nature that needs management. It's people and the voracious appetite that they have for consuming and developing and acquiring. It's, it's, it's about greed. So there was one specific moment that convinced Liliana to pursue this approach to conservation. We'll hear about it when we come back. This production is sponsored by the Amazon Conservation Team, protecting the Amazon in partnership with indigenous groups since 1996. To get involved, visit amazonteam.org. Welcome back. So far, we've heard about the conventional way of doing things, investing in large-scale policy from the top down, and the way biocultural conservation seeks to connect with people on the ground to find solutions that fit their needs. We've heard about the absence of indigenous groups in conservation historically, and how this new approach seeks to remedy that by listening. So let's talk about the results and impacts. For Liliana, the first impact is personal because she never anticipated doing this kind of work. Well, 
Well, you know, it's been very difficult for me personally because I'm not a, a sociologist or an anthropologist, and I certainly didn't want to be an ethnobotanist or necessarily wanted to work with indigenous people. In fact, I didn't want to. I was very clear about that. But an unexpected event made Liliana realize that this was her life's work. It happened at the height of her frustration with conservation, right when she was about to quit entirely. She was in Costa Rica at OSA Conservation, and Taita Luciano, who you heard at the beginning of the program, encouraged her to take part in a ceremony and drink yahe, a hallucinogenic potion made from the ayahuasca vine. But she was skeptical. I had heard a lot of ayahuasca and yahe and other hallucinogens, though that is absolutely the wrong word to use. I really didn't want to have anything to do with it. In these areas, cultural tourism and the commercialization of ayahuasca are huge threats to building awareness about the importance of traditional medicine for indigenous cultures. Liliana explained how she didn't want to do yahe out of respect for indigenous communities because she wasn't indigenous. But Taita Luciano insisted. And so I do yahe, and then it's like, it's this reaction, this like this negative reaction of all these guys over there laughing. No, and they start doing the nettling, the ortiga. And I just remember I got welts about this big and all I'm over like, my this body. Doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. And finally, they sent Taita Luciano. When I see him, it's like he's like 40 feet high. So the next, the next day, it's like, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. I came here to work, you know, I didn't come here. To, let's look at the maps and figure out, you know, if we can establish a reserve. So she turned to what she knew best, her metrics and the conservation strategy to buy up valuable land. But doubling down on the traditional way of doing things didn't work out until she made another attempt to listen to the importance of the spiritual world to the communities she was trying to work with. The second ceremony comes around, and I was so tired. I was so tired, so tired. I really didn't want to do this, and they said, you have to. And then all of a sudden, I found myself in this gigantic sort of succulent, pillowy plant that was getting me like this. And I just like, I, I mean, to this day, it was the most relaxing, most beautiful sleep ever in my life. It was great. I said, oh, that was really nice. I think I'll do the second one. So I do the second one, you know, and then it just, it, it starts to talk to me. It's like, you're going to do this work? Liliana's experiences show that doing this conservation work requires the input and participation of local communities, but it also requires that conservationists themselves learn, listen, and stay open to different ways of understanding the world. What I learned and continue to learn, because you never stop, is that there are different knowledge systems and to work with these people that have so much to offer and understand so much is that you have to be patient. You can't rush. Nature goes at its own pace and it's, and it's largely slow. As Liliana says, this work takes a long time. And Raquel Gomez has seen it firsthand. Close to 15 years ago, in one community in the Caqueta state of Colombia, Raquel remembers. There was 
There was nothing. They were totally undermined by all the influences, oil, uh, the war, by the guerrillas, by the paramilitaries, by the missionaries, by everyone. They were completely traumatized. Then, the shaman Taita Laureano came and told the community his dream. I remember very well Taita telling them, yeah, to the, to the young, that day, please don't go into the towns, into those places that is going to bring to you only bad health and death. Come, learn from us. We will teach you what we know. Here we are, and we're going to die soon. Learn from us. We will teach you about our sacred plants and our medicinal plants. We will teach you how to get, gain your health, gain um, uh, dignity. At the end, that's what it's all about. He was not talking to me, the American, or the representative of the American organization. He was talking to his children, to his young people that were there at that moment, and to the other shamans. He said, he looked up the mountain, because from that position where we were in Yurayaco, you look up the mountain, and you saw Indiwasi. You saw that mountain over there, that the Andes rose from the, from the Amazonia. And he says, that's where we come from. That's our origin, our source. That's where our elders are, where our wisdom comes from. We need to say that. We need to look at that and gather from there. At the time, Taita Laureano's vision seemed impossible. But after 15 years, the shaman's vision came to life, and the mountain became the Indiwasi National Park. It's no coincidence that this area is now the center of a massive conservation corridor that would protect plants, wildlife, and ensure clean water and biodiversity for generations to come. It's taken almost two decades to get to this point, and it's still going. But the measurable successes, the biodiversity and clean water, these things don't capture the way the park has changed the lives of the people who live in these environments. Today, they have a community that is completely reshaping their livelihood, their tradition, their knowledge, their identity. In remembering her career, Liliana Madrigal uses the word coincidence to talk about her work and its successes. But is it coincidence that the town Raquel visited changed on its own terms into a place that fosters local culture? Is it coincidence that the mountain Taita Laureano visited became the center of a massively important biodiversity corridor? Is it coincidence? Or is it something else, something simpler? Humility to accept that we just don't know everything and respect for things that we can't see, understand, or measure. Maybe it's the ability to listen, adapt, and change the way we interact with people, places, and ways of knowing that are different from what we know. Because that's how it all started. Subscribe to Maps, Magic, and Medicine on iTunes, and tune in next month for an episode about ethnobotany and shamanism. You can learn more on our website, Maps, Magic, 
mapsmagicandmedicine.com. Maps, Magic, and Medicine was produced by me, James Perla, with Eric DeLuca, Rudo Kemper, Isidore Hasboon, Brian Hetler, and Maria Mayer.